Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome everyone, I'm your host, Emerson Green. A few preliminaries before we get going. First, this is not a direct rejoinder to the inspiring philosophy video about the meager moral fruits argument, though it does come up and many of the things we say are relevant to that video. I think everything needed to respond to that video has been said, especially after this episode, but it still warrants a more direct engagement. I'm just not in a terrible hurry to get something out. In discussing this argument over the past year, I've been struck by the lack of convergence from its opponents. There's not really any one main objection or two or three main objections. Responses are just all over the place. And for that reason, I want to have an open hangout related to the meager moral fruits argument, an open hangout like Digital Gnosis often has on his YouTube channel, where anyone can hop on the stream and offer their objections to the argument. Seems like that might be useful since I've heard literally dozens of objections to the argument and it's hard to address them all since they're so disparate. Besides, most opponents to the argument don't bother listening to or reading anything the defenders of the argument have to say, so I feel the best way to deal with all the stuff that's thrown against the wall when the argument comes up is to just have a dialogue about it. So if you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, make sure to do that. I also wanted to say that one hesitation, possibly the only hesitation I feel in presenting this argument, is that I'm not giving the religious believers in my life who are amazing people and have been a positive moral witness their due. I sometimes feel a tinge of guilt when I defend this argument since I can be misunderstood as saying that there are no Christians who I respect or look up to as sources of moral wisdom. That's not at all true. So I have two things to say on this, one negative and one positive. The negative is that this concern, framed as an objection to the argument, is not any good. It should be obvious that claims made about Christianity as a whole don't reflect on every single individual person, just as claims about the United States don't reflect on every individual U.S. citizen. You could say something true about the United States, and yet it would be trivially easy to find ten people who seemed to straightforwardly disconfirm whatever claim was made. On a strictly argumentative level, this is totally insignificant. But on an interpersonal level, it's highly significant. There are Christians in my life who are wise, intelligent, moral people. They've been a positive witness in my life, even though I don't agree with them about every minute ethical issue. In fact, if more Christians were like them, I never would have offered this argument to begin with. The last thing I want to do is give the impression that I have anything other than love and respect for these people in my life, or imply that their influence hasn't been positive. I'm overwhelmingly grateful to have them in my life. I can honestly say that if more Christians were like you, the odds that I would be a Christian would increase dramatically. Emerson Green, and I'm here with Ben Watkins of Relay Theology. Uh, ben, do you want to introduce yourself real quick and tell people what your interests are and what you do? Yeah, so my name's 
Benjamin Watkins. Um, I'm in Norfolk, Virginia, and I do. Um, uh, I'm a host of a project called Real Atheology, a Philosophy of Religion podcast, where we explore questions in the philosophy of religion from analytic atheist or non-theist perspectives. And so to kind of give, fill in the niche role of giving a philosophically informed idea of what religion can look like when we um, reject something like perfect being theism that you find in the traditional Western monotheisms. And for people who don't know, you write these really great briefs, like these sort of one-page summaries of arguments. And um, you recently wrote one for the meager moral fruits argument, and we started talking about it. So uh, we both figured that we would just get together and kind of work through the different sections of your uh, of your brief about the meager moral fruits argument. By the way, do you have any plans to like share those more publicly or like disseminate them in, in any way? Because they're really good. Um, yeah. So um, I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do that because right now it's just kind of a cluttered mess in my Google Drive. Um, and they're always constantly evolving. So I need to figure out some way where I can put them out there, but then in which when I make updates, they update accordingly. And I just haven't quite figured that whole part out just yet. But yes, we are. Uh, we do have plans to kind of have a centralized database where you can go and by topic um, go through each of the briefs to kind of give you um, a spark notes type um, summary of some, usually it, it might be an argument if you can get it all to fit on one page, but it usually has to do with some essential concept or claim and just trying to unpack it more so that people can see the actual analytic philosophy. I find, especially for myself, when you're dealing with things that are so abstract like this, seeing them in that analytic structure just really helps to kind of see the forest for the trees. Uh, do you mind if I say something before we get started about why I'm interested in the meager moral fruits argument? Yes, please. Um, I I saw a tweet from Kenny Pierce a long time ago. It was about an article called What's Your Religion from the AP. It said, what's your religion in the U.S.? A common reply now is none. And Kenny said, none of the people interviewed report abandoning religion because of the arguments about the existence of God. They found that the religious communities they knew were not enabling them to pursue the good for themselves and for others and struck out on their own. So I read the article and then I dug up some data from Barna, which actually did say that a lot of people um, leave religion because of the arguments, particularly the argument from evil. But things that could be classified as meager moral fruits took up a pretty big chunk of space. Like many are leaving Christianity, especially like young people, because of their moral judgments injustices in Christian history, Christian hypocrisy was something that was listed, experiences within Christian communities, you know, things that like relate to the behavior of Christians and Christian leaders and Christian institutions and so on. So it's not like I like came to this argument thinking, oh, I'm going to try to convince people to leave Christianity because of this. I was thinking like, oh, people have already left Christianity because of the meager moral fruits argument or like, you know, some version of those meager moral fruits considerations. And I was mainly just trying to work out whether that reasoning that's already being given is defensible or whether it's just totally irrational to think that the fruits of a religion have anything to do with whether it's true. <laughs> so I don't think it's irrational to weigh your moral judgments of a religion into one, whether it's true, and two, whether you should be an adherent. 
you know, like I, I think it would actually be weird not to do that. So is it rational to think that the moral fruits of a religion are any indication of whether it's true? Yeah, I think that it's some indication. It's not the only consideration to factor in, but it is certainly a consideration to factor in. I think that's a really good point. Um, and to kind of echo some of your sentiments there. So my own personal deconversion story um, happened in my early 20s um, in a very religious conservative faith. And I started doubting my faith. And one of the, the uh, threads that really pulled on that is the fact that I have a gay brother. And so having a gay brother in a very conservative religious tradition, there was a very big tension there. And so I was kind of um, trying to figure that tension out. And so I've, you know, um, as time went on, I obviously sided with my brother on this. And so now kind of in hindsight, I can see um, in a way in which the meagle moral fruit reasoning probably in a psychological way motivated parts of my deconversion because I saw this as, you know, well, if theism were true, you know, my brother wouldn't have to go through something like this because he's having to go through something like this. That's some reason to think that religious tradition is just wrong. And so yeah. that's very crude reasoning now in hindsight. I don't think mm -hmm. it exactly went like that at the time, but it was something along those lines. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm interested in refining or seeing seeing if that can be refined. Like, you know, because a lot of people, I think, have like very similar considerations. And can we sharpen those considerations into something that's like a respectable argument? You know, and I, I feel like you can. <laughs> um, that's what this is about. So, yeah. So you you see the argument as having really three essential moving parts. And I really like this because, again, I think it helps visualize kind of the abstract uh, abstract nature of argumentation to really help us see like what's motivating um, the conclusion here. And so why don't you take a minute to kind of broadly lay out those three moving parts of the argument for Migo Moral Fruits so that the audience can kind of see what's what we're getting at here. Yeah, I mean, you only need three things really to get the argument off the ground, a theological premise an empirical premise and a moral premise. So the theological premise is essentially just that um, the predictions of naturalism and theism are not identical. Like they don't lead us to form the exact same expectations with regards to moral fruits. You know, if Christianity is true, that leads, you know, that leads us to make certain predictions and it leads us to form certain expectations about moral fruits given Christian theology and claims in Christian scripture. Um, you know, this is not something that I'm making up. I'm listening to what Christians are telling me. And um, this is an extremely well-supported premise of the argument. It's just the idea that uh, Christians should be noticeably different from non-Christians, according to like Christian theology and Christian scripture and so forth. Well, so because this is an argument against theism, we have to some extent use claims that theists make. If theists aren't committed to the claims, then these arguments just aren't really going to be relevant. And so really the way I see it is that you're saying, look, um, theism generally and Christian theism in particular um, makes the claim that God is a source of moral motivation, guidance, and transformation in the sense that there is something about believe, a knowledge of God that will make you morally better than if you didn't believe. There's something morally transformative about 
a knowledge of God. And so by taking that claim that theists make, that makes predictions, predictions that naturalism is not similarly going to make. And it's a way in which we can confirm or disconfirm either hypothesis. So if, um, you know, Christians were to stand out morally from the crowd, um, if that was just a thing that we observed in the world, that would be confirming evidence for Christian theism. And the fact that we don't see that is some reason to doubt it. Is that more or less kind of the, I'm mean, getting a little just, bit ahead of myself. But. Well, I, I would just add that it's not just knowledge of God. Like there are sort of specific theological claims about like the morally transformative nature of the Holy Spirit or sanctifying grace, you know, in the context of Catholicism. Yeah. Some people will say like, oh, this is, this is an argument against Christianity. This isn't an argument against theism. And my knee-jerk response is just like, so what? So like, it's okay to have arguments that are just against Christianity. Like, if you make an argument against the resurrection, isn't that kind of tailored towards Christianity? I mean, would it make sense to be like, this isn't an argument against Islam? It's like, who cares? Like, it's, yeah, sometimes you make arguments that are just against Christianity. But the meager moral fruits structure, though, you know, it's very versatile. You can make many different versions of the meager moral fruits argument, and you can tailor it towards different religions. You know, like, it, it's, it just doesn't seem like a, a big deal that the versions that I tend to forward are... Yeah, they're related to Christianity because that's what I care the most about. I don't know if theism necessarily entails like anything about like moral motivation. I mean, it's plausible, but well, God's a moral agent, so He gives us some reason to expect moral agents with certain degrees of um, moral praiseworthy and moral blameworthiness. I mean, I see that that makes sense to me, but. I tend to put the argument in explicitly Christian terms or explicitly Muslim terms or so on and so on because the scriptures and the traditions like offer more specific support for a theological premise. And I don't know of any like theistic tradition that says, yeah, if you adhere to our religion, you'll become significantly worse. <laughs> they, they do seem to make, uh, you know, similar kinds of claims. So like you can make the same argument against Islam or against Christianity. You don't really need to adjust very much. I mean, in Islam, they make you know very strong claims about infidels and about non-believers. Um, so I tend to just tailor it for you know specific religions, and it's like, look, you could do this for for any religion. But yeah, make, working from theism by itself, you know, it's not totally implausible, but it's just so much easier when you have like the Bible or the Quran to work from. Sure. Um, the, the the one thing I see here, the one uh, potential pitfall or place where someone could push back is that they might think that, you know, because you're tailoring it to Christian theism, that you're kind of hitting it low hanging fruit because Christian theism already has this very low prior probability, especially when compared with something to naturalism. And so that to make the, make it more of a fair fight to put it up against kind of a bare theism. Um, but even on a bare theistic view, we are still going to make claims that theists have a relationship with God and that God is something even at least analogous to an omniscient moral sage. Like he's going to have knowledge of all moral truths and a relationship with you. And so we can do kind of an inductive sampling from our own 
experience with moral people that when someone has, you know, when someone is loving and they want to pass on this moral wisdom, you become better because of it. And so none of this requires us to borrow any claims from any sectarian religion. It seems like this is just what it would be like from the nature of love and the no, na- the nature of being a moral sage. Yeah, God is this ultimate moral exemplar, and it's like having a relationship with God, or, or especially if you believe that you know He revealed something to you know a particular religion, as you know virtually all theists do. Then um, yeah, I, I feel like the theological premise just gets stronger and stronger. But yeah, I mean the core of the theological premise is just that the predictions of theism and naturalism are not the same. Like, I yeah. don't feel like that's... Uh, it's most general no. terms. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah, and I mean, um, put another way, the moral fruits of theism are not evidentially irrelevant. You know, like, that's what it takes to deny the theological premise at the end of the day, is to say that the moral fruits of a particular religion or theism in general just don't matter at all, evidentially speaking. And I just think that's a very implausible claim. Um I guess another way of putting it, we were just talking about before we officially started, there's this notion of evidential complementarity. So if an observation is evidence favoring hypothesis one over hypothesis two, then it just follows inescapably that the negation of that is evidence for hypothesis two over hypothesis one. So if O is evidence for H1 over H2, then not O is evidence over for H2 over H1. It just follows. Like you can't have one without the other. So if I say, you know, imagine a world where there's one particular religion that stands head and shoulders above other religions, you know, so like there is a really noticeable distinction between Christians and non-Christians. You know, if that's the world we lived in, is that something that would just be irrelevant? You know, the fact that like the, the predictions of this particular religion about its adherence were actually borne out. No, that wouldn't be evidentially irrelevant. Yeah, so I think that once you grant that if there was one particular religion that stood out, morally speaking, that bore unique moral fruits, then you can say that if we don't live in that world, then it's evidence for um, naturalism over theism. I think it just follows once you grant that if Christianity was noticeably different from like you know everyone else, then that would be evidence for Christianity. I think it would be. So the fact that we don't observe that, or if it's your judgment that we don't observe that, then it follows that this is evidence against Christianity. So to kind of wrap up the theological premise and then move on to the second moving part, um, really what we're the the essentially what we're saying here is that if theism is true, if we suppose there is an omnipotent and morally perfect being. Um, then we would predict the lives of theists are discernibly more moral than non-theists. So that brings us to kind of the empirical piece of the argument that you see as the second kind of moving part of the argument, which is to say that when we go to we, – we, we have a hypothesis as making a prediction, and so when we go look at the world empirically, we see something different. Yeah, and I think as long as we're within our epistemic rights to confidently make descriptive and empirical claims about the world, even though we're not perfectly rational, we are like subject to some cognitive biases. Um, we we're only not infallible. Have, we're, <laughs> we're not infallible. Um, you know, we only ever have incomplete 
data sets, we're not omniscient, and yet I think we are still within our epistemic rights to make empirical judgments about the world. Um, yeah, so I think that the example that I repeatedly come to, because it's just so easy, I don't think anyone could really deny the empirical premise of the argument that I usually give just as an example, which is that, you know, uh, if Christianity were true, then it would be an aid to the good, the pursuit of the good for oneself and for others, and not an obstacle to the pursuit of the good. Christianity is clearly an obstacle to legal and social equality for gay people. Um, I don't see who could deny that empirical premise that like it was and still is an obstacle to that. And then it's just the moral judgment that, well, legal and social equality for gay people is a moral good. Like there shouldn't be different laws for people who are gay versus people who are straight. And that brings us to the third moving part, the moral suppositions we make about the empirical, empirical just uh, judgment. Yeah. Right? Um, which I also think the moral supposition there is on pretty firm ground. I mean, like it, it, it's not the kind of thing that requires no defense, but you know, I mean, find me an argument in philosophy of religion where it's like, yeah, the premises require no defense. Um, so yeah, if you're going to offer a meager moral fruits argument, yeah, the, the premises are going to be contentious, but that's not really a unique problem for this argument. So saying that legal and social equality for gay people is immoral good. Yeah, that's contentious. Some people still think there should be different laws for gay people and straight people. You know, they think that gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married. Um, some people think there shouldn't be social equality for gay people. Like it's fine to disown your child if they come out as gay or something. I disagree with that. And I would happily defend that moral claim that there should be legal and social equality for gay people. Um, you know, I, I don't see why that would be uh, harder to defend than like either side of everything that begins to exist has a cause. You know, that's also a contentious premise. But um, anyway, so like, yeah, your premises are going to need some defense probably, but that's not exactly a unique problem. So yeah, you make a certain moral judgment, a certain evaluative or moral judgment. You make a certain empirical judgment. In this case, well, Christianity is was and still is a massive obstacle to legal and social equality for gay people. And, you know, based on the expectations we'd form from the truth of Christianity, that's just not what we would expect. We wouldn't expect Christianity to be we wouldn't expect Christianity itself to be an obstacle to the pursuit of the good, you know, because it's not like this kind of anti-gay stuff from Christians is like coming out of nowhere. Like it's pretty well grounded, you know, in Christian scripture and theology and uh, tradition. Um, so Christianity itself is an obstacle to the pursuit of the good here. And, you know, there's plenty of disagreements to be, well, actually, there aren't many disagreements to be had on this particular argument. Like, um, it seems like the, the most contentious part would just be that legal and social equality for gay people is a moral good. But, you know, that's, I think, easier to defend than, um, you know, other claims in, that are, like, commonly made in philosophy of religion. It well, so it's certainly that. easier to defend, I think. Um, so in my mind, it's easier to defend... The claim that um, homosexual homosexual acts and unions are morally permissible than it is to defend that they're somehow morally wrong. But then there's another step that has to be put on. Then you have to say that it would. It's also a moral good that they not have <laughs> social equality. So that there's you have to you have to also not only justify the moral status of homosexuality, but you also have to justify then this e an egalitarian principle, this, this um, way of discriminating against certain people. 
And so the negation of the moral premise in the example that you give to me just seems way more difficult to defend than to just say that no LGBT acts and unions are morally permissible because you can do that with a very simple harm ethic. Yeah. And I mean, like, like I said, I'm willing to have the debate to defend the, uh, that particular moral claim, but some people seem to think that if you, if there's something contentious or it doesn't really command like uh, convergence or agreement, then like, Oh, it's, it's hopeless. The argument's hopeless, but you know, I just don't see how that's a unique problem here for the, uh, the meager moral fruits argument. People seem like excessively pessimistic about it. Yeah, there's a, a, a kind of a thing in analytic philosophy where you just you can't make use of disputable premises, and like the 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 weakness of an argument has to do with how disputable its premises is. And while obviously I agree to, to some extent with that sentiment, um, it's also a point. You know, people dispute the law of logic. Like they're just people who are just like, yep, nope. Or, you know, dispute like, ex, you know, the external world. And so the fact that some claim just is disputable, you know, there aren't very many indisputable claims in analytic philosophy. And so it seems to be this high bar that's being set for, you know, you have to set the standards of, of what a successful argument looks up, looks like to just an unreasonably high level because your argument's actually pretty modest the argument doesn't have its conclusion as what you believe. It just tells you the direction of evidence. It just tells you that, hey, this is a chip in favor of naturalism that raises the probability of naturalism over theism. Theism might have other chips that outweigh, like there's a, there's a modesty to your argument that I think kind of has gone under underappreciated because people are trying to make you seem to be trying to give some argument that you're not, some decisive refutation of theism, such that if you were to accept all of the premises, then you just could no longer be a theist rationally. And that's not the argument you're putting forward, right? No, definitely not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you might be right about that. I mean, it does often feel like people are attacking an argument that I'm not making. And I think some of that. Well, they've done it to me too. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think some of it is just run-of-the-mill laziness. Like they're not actually reading or listening to anything that I'm saying, and then they're just kind of responding to what they think the argument is, which you know is frustrating, but not exactly um, unheard of in um, yeah. debating religion online. But the thing, like the point that I'm trying to make about these sorts of like empirical or moral judgments, which are contentious, is that convincing others that you are right about these like evaluative or empirical judgments is just a different question from, you know, from the actual issue here. Like, even if you don't agree with my moral judgments, you should be able to see that if you did, it wouldn't be evidentially irrelevant. So like, you might not agree with me, but like, you should still be able to see that like, if you did agree with my particular like moral claim and empirical claim that this would count as evidence. It's like, so there's a way that um, this was put in a blog post, this really great blog post called Why I'm an Atheist by Naturalism Next, a mutual friend of ours. Um, but he has a uh, section called Flawed Religions, but he ends it with saying, um, I'm aware that this is a fairly contentious claim. Perhaps the uh, proponents of a particular religion will claim that their religion does in fact stand out as a moral exemplar amongst the crowd. For this reason, I doubt my argument will be convincing to such people. 
However, I think it is clear why this fact provides me with evidence against theism. So, you know, this is a point that I've come back to over and over again about like the um, uh, person-based nature of justification. I, I think that like, even if you don't share my, my judgment that legal and social equality for gay people would be a moral good, um, you should still be able to appreciate that if you did, it would probably strike you as very odd that the one true religion and, you know, the only real followers of a perfect being have gotten this question so persistently wrong. Yeah. Um, and so to help the audience, too, so you don't think that we're just pulling objections out of some imaginary vacuum. So some people have criticized this argument. Um, and so one of those, uh, some of those criticisms I'll just lay out from Inspiring Philosophy in a video that he made. Um, kind of responding to the video you made on the meal moral fruits, and he made claims like the argument suffers from too many problems, suffers from too many assumptions, and the argument is not sufficient in offering evidence against Christianity, which really what we just summed up kind of refutes that because what the claim that you're making follows from the law of likelihood. You're saying that, look, if if this datum is predicted by this theory and not this theory, it's just straightforward evidence for this theory. So that kind of falls flat. But then to give an example of how it's almost seems like attacking an argument that you're not making, he says, the claim that atheists and non-theists are equally moral is clouded by bias with no objective procedure for how much moral fruit for Christianity to bear. And so that just seems straightforward. You're, why would we doubt this premise because of some sort of bias or lack of an objective procedure? Um, I don't remember you making any claims um, that seemed very controversial, again, in that empirical premise. Yeah, especially with the the example that I keep coming back to to the point where it's like, it seems like it's the only argument that I'm making, but you know, what does that have to do with the claim that Christianity was and still is an obstacle to legal and social equality for gay people? Like, does he actually deny that premise? Does anyone in their right mind deny that? Like empirical judgment? I don't know. Um, it's one of those things that I um, can't put, because again, it seems like he's he's looking at some other argument that you're not making. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you're, you're bringing up specific objections, and I think that it's kind of difficult because the, no one has really converged around one particular objection to this argument. Like there hasn't really been any kind of convergence from opponents as to what the exact problem with the argument is. From my perspective, as someone who's been like kind of casually defending this for a while, it just feels like everyone's just throwing everything against the wall because they're certain that it fails, but none of them agree about why it fails. Yeah. And, um, you know, William Hasker mentioned this in passing. He's like a Christian philosopher. He mentioned this in passing. He's like, you know, maybe if there are like if there's no convergence over what the response is supposed to be to this to some argument, maybe that's a sign. It's kind of a good argument, because if there was yeah. just like one really decisive objection or even two or three, shouldn't there be some like convergence where it's like, OK, here's why this argument doesn't work. And everyone says, you know roughly the same thing, you know, or the same like little group of things, but everyone says something different. Like it, I, if I cataloged all the responses that I've heard, you know, like here's why this argument doesn't work. I would say conservatively, there have been something like 30 ish distinct responses 
that I've seen. Like <laughs> it's a few dozen distinct responses of people who are just utterly confident the argument fails. And then there's just like no convergence about why it fails, which is, you know, maybe Hasker's right about that. Maybe he's not that, you know, if there's no convergence, maybe that's a hint or a clue. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But I just think it's interesting that there's no like major problem for this argument that everyone said, everyone lands on the same thing. Here's why this argument fails. It just doesn't exist right now. Yeah. So I want to kind of wrap it up then to kind of just show. So now that we have all the moving pieces um, in play and we've seen kind of the objections that have been leveled at it, I want to one more time kind of go through. So we start with the observation an empirical observation that seems incontroversial that um, theists have been a hindrance rather than an aid to LGBT equality. We are also making an additional moral moral supposition that um, LGBT equality would be morally a moral good. It's something that we should aspire to. So if you accept those two moving pieces right there, then the, the rest of the argument is almost uncur- like those are the two most controversial pieces of the argument because then what we want to say is that the probability of that observation given naturalism is less than the probability given Christian theism. And so from the law of likelihood, it follows that that observation is evidence confirming naturalism and disconfirming theism. And that this tells us the direction of which the evidence should be updating our beliefs. And and this is kind of like a uh, template. You know, this is a template for the meager moral fruits argument, which is really a category of arguments. You know, like what we've been talking about is not the meager moral fruits argument. Like it's, you know, I laid it out in this sort of three premise form because I wanted to leave it kind of generic so people could form fit it to their own moral and empirical judgments. We um, might be able to discover an empirical and a moral supposition, a moral, an empirical claim and a moral supposition that's even less controversial. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing where, again, because so many people throw so many things against the wall, it's hard to know what to respond to. But yeah, it's like that's a sort of moral claim or a sort of empirical judgment that we should have a certain level of confidence in and and we shouldn't be dogmatic about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, imagine a world where Christians are all kinder. That would be evidence for Christianity, I think. Um, yeah, like, like if, if it was if just I, known yeah. that, you know, look, Christians are very, very kind. Like they're no, like Mormons are almost known this way. Like Mormons are known for being exceptionally kind. Like, but theists could just be kind and that non-theists were noticeably, discernibly less kind. And that that was just a thing. <laughs> that was, yeah. uh, that was the empirical reality we lived in. Or, or think about like, um, you know, like the Westboro Baptist Church and the way that they behave. Like, d- does anyone really grapple with like their theological beliefs? Like, does anyone even know what they are? <laughs> like, they, no, we just see their behavior. We see them holding up the signs they do and kind of standing outside funerals. And we're just like, you know, it, it's so obvious that like, oh, this is not of God. And we're judging them purely by their fruits. Like, even if you did look into the theology or whatever, you're going into it with probably a very high degree of skepticism because of their moral fruits, you know? And what I'm saying is like, I'm pretty sure everyone already does this. And second of all, it's fine. 
it's fine that everyone does this because the fruits of a particular religious sect or religion, they actually do matter. They are not evidentially neutral. Um, so do you mind if I just summarize the the three premises, you know? Yes, please do so, go ahead. I was kind of doing it for memory. So <laughs> Yeah, so you know, like like I just said, the the moral fruits of theism or a particular religion or a particular religious sect, those are not evidentially irrelevant. Um, the predictions of naturalism and theism are not identical. They don't lead us to form identical expectations about the world. Um, secondly, we can confidently make descriptive and empirical claims about the world, even though we're, you know, not perfectly rational and not omniscient and so forth. We can still confidently make empirical claims about the world, about, you know, certain institutions and groups and uh, leaders and books and so forth. We can also confidently make certain moral claims and evaluative judgments, even though, once again, we're not omniscient or in, in, in possession of infallible moral intuitions or something like that. So we can confidently make moral claims. We can confidently make empirical claims with regards to the, uh, like the relevant um, material to this argument. Um, I really don't see what's so controversial about this argument other than that it's just about morality. Like the subject matter involves morality and that always seems to people on edge. Well, there are a lot of people that have doubled down on the anti-LBGT moral supposition. So I find that a lot of the pushback that I get from that example in particular is that, you know, uh, perverted faculty argument, classical theist bros will come out and just be like, no, it's obvious, you know, this is obviously a disordered act. And it's ridiculous to think that something like sodomy could be morally permissible and you just kind of go, you, you know, you cringe and move on. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you could make a meager moral fruits arguments just about internet Thomists specifically. <laughs> they're like <laughs> so uniquely depraved. Use the, the one, so you use the LGBTQ. Um, I usually specify like, LGBT. Yeah. yeah or, LGBT that, or just like legal and social equality for gay people. I use Trump. I use it. So <laughs> it's an empirical claim that, you know, evangelicals are largely responsible for putting Donald Trump in power. And so like, that's just, and to me, it feels almost like hitting low hanging fruit to, for the moral supposition to be like, that's morally bad. Like, that's just like, someone who should not have been in that position and that evangelicals should not have supported. And in a way they betray the expectations of their religious tradition by putting their support behind him. But you can imagine that gets even more politically thorny <laughs> when you put that, when, when you, when you, when you formulate it that way. Yeah, well, it sounds like someone doesn't want to make America great again. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I I know that it is contentious, and um, you know, I I can see why some people shy away from the argument just because it involves some kind of moral dispute. And like, even though you know, it's it's not like this is a unique problem for the meager moral fruits argument because it's not like if you have a debate over everything that begins to exist has a cause the universe began to exist, you know, yada, 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 like, oh, that's pretty contentious. And it doesn't really lend itself to consensus. And it's hard to know how to change people's minds about some of these issues. Like, again, a lot of the things that people say about the meager moral fruits argument are just not unique to the meager moral fruits argument. Um, and if anything, arguing that legal and social equality for gay people, you know, like making an argument for that seems less contentious to me, it seems easier to make that argument than to deny everything that begins to exist has a cause. Like if you ask me, which one are you more sure of that legal and social equality for gay people is a moral good 
or you know the denial of like one of the two premises of the kalam it's like well obviously the the moral claim um, so it doesn't even seem like the meager moral fruits argument is like you know uniquely bad off in this regard well um it's been a pleasure talking to you i mean we could go on for a long time yeah. because there there are just so many objections that people have offered to this like i mean we haven't scratched the surface of what people have said about the argument um but yeah it's, it's just really what i think is 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 really just kind of indisputable let me say is really the form of the argument i think that once you look at the the, the modesty of the form of the argument that really can't be challenged and i just don't think that the theological premise can be challenged either like to re- like like you said earlier like you just have to admit that naturalism and theism or in particular christian theism make the same predictions about moral fruit that just seems wild yeah that's what what you'd be committed to if you denied the theological (laughs) premise you'd be saying moral fruits are evidentially neutral and irrelevant and um the predictions of naturalism and theism are in perfect alignment jesus offers zero transformative power and then as soon as they stop talking about the argument they go back to saying what they do in every other context except when they're trying to oppose this argument so, so really you're left with trying to deny an empirical premise or a moral supposition about that empirical claim in that empirical premise. And that, that's tough. I mean, that, so that's where the interesting dialectical work goes. That's where the interesting conversation is to be had. And I hope uh, more interesting objections come forward so we can discuss them at some later date. I do want to mention, say one, one, one more thing uh, before we wrap it up, um, because I, I, I get one of the things that I get a lot is objections to the form of this argument, and I really want to drive home the fact that the form of this argument is like really not controversial. So one of the pragmatists in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, Charles Sanders Pierce um, coined the phrase an inference to the best explanation and basically says that if some surprising fact is observed and if some explanation were true and this surprising fact would be a matter of course, then it's some reason to suspect that explanation is true. And so that's exactly what we've done here. Um, Emerson put it in a likelihood judgment, put it in that exact form. Um, And given that theism and atheism are mutually exclusive and exhausted explanations for the observed fact, it's surprising if we assume Christian theism, but not if we suppose naturalism. And so it could be a best explanation, an inference to a best explanation. Um, But that's a pretty uncontroversial way of understanding evidence and how observations are supposed to update our beliefs. And so, again, the form just really isn't something that's going, you're not going to have a whole lot of success objecting to the form of the argument. I'll end it there. I mean, I think that there's, I think that a lot of people have factored this into their uh, judgment of like what they should do and how they should live. It already is the case that people are kind of making this judgment all I'm trying to say is that that's okay. The fact that people are making um, moral and empirical judgments about Christianity, and then that factors into whether or not they're going to be a Christian, I'm saying, yeah, it would be weird if they didn't do that. It's okay that they're doing that. And uh, I think also it might be worth 
having kind of like an open call about this, like uh, just going live on YouTube and then just sort of doing something that like uh, Nathan Ormond does where he has these like yeah. open hangouts. Maybe I'll do one that's specifically about the meager moral fruits argument. I definitely like to be part of that. If, if you do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I think I'd it's just more helpful just to bring people on instead of being like, uh, here's what some people have said to me. And then I'm sure that like, you know, 98% of people are listening are just like, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> it's like, well, that's just how the objections to this argument tend to go. Like, like I said, you get, you hear 50 different objections and they all <laughs> act like they're on the same side here. But anyway, it would be, I think more fruitful just to actually have like, like a more like open Socratic discussion about meager moral fruits rather than be like, well, here's the structure of the argument, which a lot of the people who oppose it are not going to listen to anyway, and just continue to attack a version of the argument that they um, imagine it to be. And, uh, you know, on top of that, we're dealing with objections that probably many people who oppose the argument wouldn't make anyway. So I think that maybe that open hangout format would be, would be fruitful. I, I really like that idea. Cool. I definitely I, yeah, love definitely love to have you there. Because as far All as right. I know, we need someone else who who also wants to defend the argument because it's a pretty lonely position defending the meager moral fruits argument. <laughs> well, uh, Emerson Green, I really do appreciate you taking the time to sit down and uh, discuss this, argue with me and bounce ideas because um, it's definitely been something that I found interesting. And I hope other people find it interesting well as a tool to help them in their journey through the philosophy of religion. And with that, I guess we will see you all next time. thing like like we said the main thing is that reputation as it turns out is not an infallible guide to truth which rocked my world. mr rogers was a rapist Wait, <laughs> mr rogers was a pedophile um, <laughs> but yeah uh you know something that you mentioned we're gonna cut earlier. that part out <laughs> yeah <laughs> no that's just gonna be the thing like at the beginning like you play one clip and then there's some music and then you start the episode it's just yeah. be, mr. Rogers, rogers was, was a pedophile <laughs> 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 <laughs>